Chapter 22 Operational Superintendent The Chief Constable set a date for another massive reorganisation that would fundamentally change the way that policing was delivered for the West Midlands. He did a good job of selling it as a positive development. Still, no one was under any illusion that there was anything other than another money-saving exercise devised to urgently reduce costs in response to government cuts to police budgets. By this stage, I'd been DCI Intel for about two years. I had therefore been exposed to most of what life across every part of the West Midlands could throw at me. In January 2017, as part of the force reorganisation, all my intelligence teams were disbanded and two new, much larger teams were created, one at headquarters in Birmingham city centre and the other one in Bourneville in the suburbs. I was given the job of managing the teams at Bourneville and these teams would focus on what was happening across the force 24-7, providing intelligence support to frontline officers and investigators. We would support the response to critical incidents, high-risk missing people, firearms incidents and all sorts of other live issues. The people providing the slower burn intelligence support and the analysts would be based at headquarters. I did this for about a year and enjoyed it most of the time. It was hectic and there was always something interesting or serious going on somewhere across the force. I became the force lead for threats to life because of the sheer number of these that we were dealing with on our team. Before the reorganisation, these had been dealt with across all 10 police command units, spreading the load. But now they all came to my teams and it was part of my job to assess them and decide if we'd done enough to reduce the threat. In police jargon, a threat to life is recorded and managed when the police become aware via intelligence that person A intends to cause serious harm or kill person B. Frequently, the threat can be against multiple individuals. The police deal with a lot of these, particularly the big urban forces like West Midlands, the Met and Greater Manchester. It was not unusual to have three or four new threats coming in every day in my old force. Almost all of these cases involved fallouts between or within serious and organised crime gangs and typically resulted from unpaid drug debts, theft of drugs or suspicions that someone was a police informer. Often they could be about a trivial disrespect issue revenge for a previous attack on a gang member by a rival gang, or a gang member finding out that his girlfriend was sleeping with another gang member while he was in prison. The one thing that they all had in common was that none of the people involved were nice people, so they were taken seriously. You might think, who cares if two drug dealers want to kill each other? Let them get on with it. Well, Apart from the small matter of the right to life under Article 2 of the Human Rights Act, there is also the genuine risk that some poor innocent person will get shot in the crossfire in the process. Remember, 
Drug dealers and criminals are usually not the sharpest knives in the box. So there's always the risk that they'll fire a shotgun or spray a Uzi through the wrong person's front window, just as they're settling down to watch Coronation Street. There's also a significant financial burden that comes with arresting criminals. A single murder costs the taxpayer about £2 million to investigate, prosecute and incarcerate the guilty party. Better all round to try to stop such crimes from happening in the first place. The police do a lot of work behind the scenes to try to prevent people from getting murdered. I won't go into the sort of things that the force does, because a lot of it is sensitive. But these preventative actions often have to be done very quickly. When I was in the police, there was always the possibility of something going wrong and us getting blamed, which now seems to be the default response by the media when anything bad happens. By this stage, in early 2017, I only had about two years to go before I retired, and most days I would think that I was an absolute idiot because I was still managing a lot of risky stuff. I knew that any one of the threats to life that I was dealing with could go really badly pear-shaped through no fault of mine, and then the much-distrusted Independent Office for Police Conduct, IOPC, would descend like a ton of bricks and find some poor bastard like me to hang out to dry. Fortunately, none of the cases did go pear-shaped, and that's definitely a testament to the professionalism of our staff and their thoroughness in managing high-risk issues. At this time, the force ran a selection process for several temporary superintendent jobs. I applied and was successful. The new operating model included a small team of uniformed superintendents who took it in turns to have overall responsibility for the entire force, seven days a week. I was very fortunate to be asked to take on one of these roles. After being offered the position, I went off to get my uniform sorted out because it had been nearly 10 years since I'd been in uniform. When it arrived later that week, I put it on and stood looking at myself in the mirror with a superintendent crying on my shoulders. It was a very proud moment because I, like many people in the police, had had many disappointments and frustrations with various promotion processes. It was great to be finishing my career at the senior rank of superintendent. The title of my new job was Mission Support Superintendent. Alongside the other new support superintendents, I was responsible for running the force during a particular shift. We would have to make decisions regarding where to put resources to manage the biggest risks and chair the daily force threat and risk management meetings that took place every morning at 9am and again at 3pm. We would look back over the previous 24 hours and then look ahead to allocate resources and make sure that serious incidents were being managed properly. Most days there would be shootings, stabbings, high-risk missing people, track down or other serious incidents that would require an enhanced response. We also gave the legal authorizations for various things that needed the permission of a superintendent, such as urgently accessing telecoms data in life-threatening situations, and I was also trained to authorize covert surveillance deployments. One of the tasks I was required to carry out 
was to authorise the detention of suspects beyond the normal limit of 24 hours. If an offence is serious and complex, and there are good reasons that the suspect needs to be kept in for longer to conduct the investigation effectively, a superintendent can extend their detention by a maximum of a further 12 hours. If we needed more time, we would have to apply for that in a magistrate's court, but those cases were quite rare. I would therefore travel to one of a number of cell blocks around the force to speak to the investigators for a specific case, consult with the suspect's solicitor and speak to the detainee to explain their rights. This brings me to another reason that I think arrest and prosecution rates have plummeted nationally. Years ago, most police stations had their own cell block or custody suite. Generally, the custody sergeants were drawn from the local station and they knew the officers well. If you arrested someone, it was a fairly simple matter of returning them to the NIC, booking them in with the custody sergeant and handing them over to local investigators, who would also be based in the same building. It was a pretty straightforward process that ensured that the arresting officer could be back out in the streets sniffing out more criminality and responding to urgent calls in less than an hour. 10 minutes to get the prisoner to the station, 20 minutes to get them booked in, and another 30 minutes to write up their statement of the arrest. The years of austerity from 2010 changed all that. Lots of police stations were sold off or closed, and much bigger cell blocks were built to accommodate large numbers of detainees. But a force that previously had 10 local cell blocks might now only have one or two. Arresting someone now requires the arresting officers to travel much longer distances, often in heavy traffic, and get in a queue before they can book in. It's not unusual for officers to have to wait a couple of hours before they even get to the front of the queue. Furthermore, the investigators are usually not based in the local stations, and they too may have to drive some distance to deal with the suspect. It's now quite normal for a very simple arrest that would previously have taken only an hour to deal with to take a couple of officers off the street for an entire shift. So, Unsurprisingly, lots of officers will now avoid arresting people unless it's absolutely unavoidable. And this leads to fewer cases being investigated and fewer people being charged and taken to court. Another explanation for the reduction in charges and prosecutions is all about police numbers. This is not only about how many officers there are on duty, but also what you do with them. It's important to explain here how to increase the likelihood of catching someone who's committed a serious crime, which then leads to a successful investigation and prosecution. Much of the academic research into this question is crystal clear, and my own experience points to the same conclusions. Solving a crime is all about responding quickly and arriving quickly, ideally when the suspect is still there or nearby. As well as having a fighting chance of catching someone, the police are also then in a position to swiftly identify witnesses who are still physically at the scene, 
secure vital physical and forensic evidence that would otherwise be lost or contaminated, find items discarded or dropped by the suspect, and contain the area to stop them escaping. This will also allow a police dog to track the suspect or a helicopter to find them using thermal imaging. As well as all of those things, the police also need to attend the scene as soon as possible to give the victim a high standard of care and support because if this happens, they're more likely to cooperate with an investigation. This is particularly important in instances of domestic violence or with sexual offences. However, and here's the thing, the police can only do this properly if two conditions apply. Firstly, there needs to be enough officers available on duty to respond in sufficient numbers. Secondly, these valuable resources cannot be tied up dealing with trivial rubbish. In light of this assessment, it's very obvious why arrest, charge and conviction rates have been so woefully poor in recent years. The rapid response detailed above was the bread and butter approach to policing back in the 1990s. There were plenty of us on duty and we prioritised the most serious stuff, meaning that when someone dialed 999 and told us that they were being burgled or beaten up, we got there super fast and we arrested people a lot of the time. That now happens quite rarely. Solicitors and barristers often complain about their court work drying up and how the public are now being denied justice. I totally agree that the public are being denied justice for all sorts of reasons. But ironically, much of this tiresome bureaucracy was created in response to complaints by lawyers. For the past 20 years, in many of the cases that I've been involved in, lawyers have routinely portrayed the police as being corrupt in court, to throw sand in the eyes of juries and create doubt in their minds. Lawyers still routinely advise 99% of their clients to make no comment in every police interview, even if they know that their clients are guilty of a serious crime. This has made many officers more reluctant to arrest people unless they know they have an absolutely cast iron case, which is very rare. It's also one of the reasons that so many officers are reluctant to conduct stop and search, because they know that this will be portrayed in court in a very negative way by defence barristers. Lawyers have also complained about how little they earn from the criminal justice system since the big changes to legal aid provisions in 2013. These changes were made by Chris Grayling when he was Lord Chancellor, and in short, restricted the eligibility criteria for legal aid generally and meant that criminal lawyers would be paid fixed fees for each case. In 2011, it was reported that the UK was spending £39 per head of the population on legal aid, compared with £8 in New Zealand and £5 in France and Germany. I feel quite sorry for the current generation of younger lawyers because they are now paying for the sins of a generation of lawyers before them who shamelessly pillaged the legal aid system for many years. 
I can remember those years very well indeed, and the frustration of seeing defence lawyers blatantly gaming the system to maximise their earnings. The standard tactic was for them to advise their clients to make no comment to police when it definitely wasn't in their interest to do so. They would then advise them to plead not guilty, even when the evidence was overwhelmingly showing their guilt. Then they would seek adjournment after adjournment at court to rack up their billing. And when they really couldn't string it out any longer, they would advise their client to change their plea to guilty at the very last moment. It was a monumental piss take and it resulted in huge legal aid bills, a waste of court time and stress for victims and witnesses. Crucially, it also took police officers off the streets as they'd be forced to hang around courts for days waiting to give evidence, knowing that the case would probably be adjourned yet again. It was a bit like the MP's expenses scandal in that things had become so blatant that something had to change. When the rules changed, guess what? Many more lawyers started advising their clients to plead guilty early in the process so they could get paid quickly. The lawyers have helped to create the situation, so they can't be too surprised that court cases have dried up and many police officers have somewhat lost their appetite for getting involved in confrontations on the streets that might lead to contentious arrest and then a torrid time in the witness box. Another big change that I saw over the last 10 or 15 years of my service was how what were known as constant watches became a massive drain on police officers' time. Constant watches are where a police officer has to physically sit and watch a detainee in a cell who has either stated that they're feeling suicidal or has had suicidal marker placed on their profile on the police national computer. This means that at some stage in the past, the detainee has expressed suicidal thinking whilst in custody or tried to take their own life other than in a police station. The police deal with a lot of people like this and the collapse of community mental health provisions in the UK has created a crisis in police custody centres, which often become the only places available to take someone who is experiencing a severe mental health crisis. The other type of constant watch is in a hospital, where a member of the public is admitted either because they're a victim of serious crime or because they're suspected of committing a serious crime. For example, if someone has fallen off a roof whilst running away from a crime and broken their leg, the police would have to babysit them in hospital until they're released. It would not be unusual for 15 or 20 uniformed officers across the force to be tied up at any one time for entire shifts doing constant watches. That's 45 to 60 officers across a 24-hour period who are not dealing with the public or preventing crime. This is another example of the risk-averse culture that has consumed policing. Only a few years ago, we would have left both victims and offenders in hospital in the hands of medical staff, and we would only sat there keeping watch for days and days if the suspect was extremely dangerous. I have a very good friend who loved being a police officer, but she resigned 
after only about five years because she was sick and tired of having to sit for entire shifts, bored out of her mind several times a week with vulnerable, in inverted commas, prisoners in the cell block. If someone is that vulnerable, the very last place that they should be is in a police cell. If the offence that they're in custody for is a minor offence, they should be released immediately, signposted to their doctor or social services and dealt with in a different way. There are few crimes that a genuinely suicidal person can commit that are so serious that they justify keeping such a person in a police cell. The obvious flip side to this is that if the police did start releasing suicidal individuals for committing petty crimes, very quickly everyone coming into custody would soon claim to be suicidal, knowing that this will earn them a get-out-of-jail-free card. I really enjoyed working as a mission support superintendent, but it could be quite stressful. This was not necessarily because of the operational decisions. I was fine with that pressure. It was more about the stress of arbitrating between lots of senior people across the organisation who all felt that their need for resources was more urgent than anyone else's. Most of the people I was dealing with were very experienced superintendents and none of them were shrinking violets. They were a hard-headed, feisty bunch and you had to be on the ball. They only really cared about their particular problem, but I had to worry about everything going on across the force 24-7. It was a massive eye-opener to see just how horribly stretched the force had become. When I'd been a uniform inspector back in Stetchford eight or nine years before, we were able to patrol the streets and respond to most calls quite quickly. We were also able to provide a neighbourhood policing presence in every community seven days a week. But now it was a very different story. Many things received little or no police attention and response teams were run ragged. Far too many officers were getting tied up with dealing with things that should have been nothing to do with the police, simply because other frontline services were providing support to people with mental health or drug and alcohol related problems had also been cut. Victims of quite serious crime who previously would have been seen within an hour or two frequently had to wait a week or more to see a police officer. I knew things were bad but it was shocking to see just how bad. It was hardly surprising that so many officers were experiencing mental health problems or thinking of leaving. Nonetheless, they were doing a heroic job and there were regularly stunning examples of great bravery and commitment. Still, I couldn't help but wonder how long this situation could last before something really bad happened. As well as working long hours in stressful conditions, officers were frequently having their shifts changed and rest days cancelled to plug gaps in resourcing and I knew that this would be putting them under even more pressure at home with their families. After 2010, there was another big change that was made to the police organisation. In addition to the loss of 20,000 police officers nationally, there was a loss of 23,500 members of police staff who carried out all sorts of essential back office duties. 
This has had a terrible impact on the ability of the organisation to provide a good service to members of the public. However, during this time, there seemed to me to be a corresponding increase in the number of senior civilian managers and project managers across many forces who were earning quite a lot of money. What then happened as an unwelcome byproduct of all this was that lots of decisions that would ultimately go on to have a significant operational impact were being made by civilians who had no understanding of how they would play out in the real world. There was also a tendency to bring in lots of overpaid external consultants who also had no experience whatsoever of policing. And these consultants were taking their advice from police officers who had been handpicked for their intellect rather than their operational experience. It would then be down to the cops on the beat to try and make things work. This often meant completely re-engineering systems and processes on the fly that had been put in place and were totally unfit for purpose. This bred a lot of cynicism amongst rank-and-file police officers. On the one hand, resources were being slashed across frontline services. On the other, millions of pounds were simultaneously being lavished on clueless consultants and senior police civilian managers who added very little value to frontline policing. When Boris Johnson replaced Theresa May as Prime Minister, one of his first major pledges was to replace the 20,000 officers that had been removed since 2010. This was very welcome news. However, in reality, this means that the service will actually have to recruit about 50,000 new officers to replace the 30,000 who will leave during that period due to the fact that there was a large influx of people like me that joined 30 years ago. In addition to this, research has shown that there needs to be roughly 10 people to apply to be a police officer in order to get one successful recruit. Many applicants fail the vetting process, fail the medical, change their minds, or simply aren't suitable. The net result of this is that the police service in England and Wales will need about half a million people to apply in order to get 50,000 police officers onto the streets. There's a huge challenge to recruit and train enough suitable people of good character, whilst ensuring that those people are supported and supervised effectively in the future. This also means that in three years' time, roughly one in three officers nationally will have less than three years' service, and most of them will be on the front line which means that in the near future, at least 50% of our frontline officers will be rookies. It takes most officers three years on the job to gain the skills that make them any good at policing. Until this point, they are simply learning how to be a police officer. This level of inexperience is not good for anyone, and it's likely to lead to very poor standards of investigation and a situation where you have the blind leading the blind. It will also create a major shortage further down the line of the deep skills and experience required 
to investigate the most complex crimes like terrorism, murder, rape and serious and organised crime. If the police service finds itself overwhelmed by an influx of inexperienced officers, it almost guarantees future miscarriages of justice and potentially higher instances of misconduct and corruption. I was right in the thick of it when working on mission support because at this time, Birmingham had earned the unfortunate reputation as the murder and gun crime capital of the UK. And it was certainly a busy time for us as we tried to keep a lid on the constantly simmering tensions between crime gangs. If it wasn't going off in Birmingham, it was bubbling away in Coventry or Wolverhampton, and it was all driven by the drug markets. I'd seen the horrible effect of drugs my entire police career, and it was definitely getting worse. I think we have to accept that the war on drugs was lost a long time ago. We need to start treating drug addiction as an illness and safely prescribe what people need in certain situations. This would take millions of pounds of revenue away from criminals, reduce crime that's carried out to feed drug habits, improve public health and massively reduce murders. However, I would also like to see much tougher police enforcement against dealers and against so-called recreational drug users who fuel enormous misery, violent crime and the exploitation of vulnerable children. Will anything change? Probably not. I won't hold my breath because hardly any politician supports the provision of free drugs to drug addicts. After a year of working as a mission support superintendent, I'd assumed that I would stay in the role right to the end of my career after another 12 months. But then an unexpected opportunity presented itself. The force was looking for a superintendent to project manage a high-tech data analytics project. This would be a global first for law enforcement and involved building an artificial intelligence capability to try to prevent gun and knife crime. I'd done a lot of work on the technology side of things by this stage, so I knew I was in with a good chance. So I applied, had an interview and was offered the job. <laughs>